Well, I'm glad that I'm here today. I'm glad you're here today, too. We are in part five of our series called Timeless. And what we've said is, that the video would have shown, is that things in our world are pretty trendy. There are all sorts of trends, musical trends, technology trends, cultural trends. And while we can lead people through trends, we can teach what's timeless. And that's what this series really has been about, those timeless truths that are not trendy, but in my last month or so here with you as your pastor, I have wanted to basically drop with you guys some straight-on teaching. They're not really good sermons and in terms of motivation and, and inspiration, but really this is just true, raw, unfiltered teaching. I don't know why they say unfiltered teaching, because everything you do is filtered, but it's just straight-on teaching, right? So we're just going to dig in today, and um, this is going to be interesting. The, today is designed to inform and to add perspective to some things that you perhaps have uh, known for a long time. Perhaps some of you grew up with a, a different view on this. Um, but I want to make sure that you guys are as biblically solid as possible before I leave you. And uh, like last week's topic, today's topic, 99% of people have an opinion on this, and that opinion is deeply embedded emotionally. So there is so much baggage with the topic that we're going to talk about today that some of you will automatically start to write me off when I say something that you may not agree with. You may automatically start to argue with me in your head, which I'm fine with, Feel free to email me, but please engage with me. So as we go through this, I think it, it will bear value. And let me just say this up front, because, because this will uh, be touchy for some of you. Um, I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I'll let you work that out, okay? Now, because today's a little bit different, I'm going to dump truck you. I am going to fire hose you with some scriptures, because it's important to me that you understand this is not what I'm saying, but that there are so many scriptures that address this topic in scripture, it is all over. So at the risk of us being here for the next two and a half hours, I'm just going to lay out for you a ton of scriptures, and I may not even talk about them a whole lot, because I'm going to let the scriptures teach themselves, speak for themselves. But for your benefit, I've given you an outline that incorporate most of the scriptures we're going to talk about today, and of course, we'll post these online uh, later uh, after today. To catch you up, if today's your first week, we started five weeks ago just doing a brief overview of the scriptures of the entire Bible, and we said that in the beginning, the, the Bible starts with God living on earth with man. Is that still st starting up? Okay, so it starts with God living on earth with man. In the beginning, Garden of Eden, just as God wanted it, it was perfect. He stepped back and said it is very good, and he walked through the garden with them. And then the famous Adam and Eve story, we broke that perfect relationship that we had with our Heavenly Father because of sin. And after that, God left, and we were left to incorporate um, the world, and he said rule over it, subject it. And on down through the generations, we got to something called the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis 12, where Abraham was promised because of his faith, the world would be blessed by one of his descendants, and uh, that the, uh, the, the land would be given to them, and it was specific outlines. If you haven't uh, become aware of that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But basically, righteousness was assigned to Abraham because of his faith, not because of his behavior. And so from the early, early stages, uh, God let us know that being good enough isn't really what it's about. It's about faith. 
Well, then the generations go on down to something called the Davidic Covenant, where he makes a promise to David, where David's, um, as in the line of Abraham, there would be somebody, eventually a king, to rule over a kingdom, and that king, which, who was not born yet, would be called the Messiah. He was the anointed one. And then, eventually, the Messiah was born, which brings us to Christmas. That's the entire Christmas story, the story of Jesus being born as God's anointed, as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And then we move into the stories of Scripture that uh, relate to Jesus. And Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. He was a man in the line of David. He uh, descended of Abraham, the Messiah. And he said that the reason he was sent was to proclaim something called the kingdom of God. And then we move past Jesus after the resurrection into the book of Acts, and the, the disciples took that message of the kingdom and the uh, resurrection of Jesus to the rest of the world. Paul comes along and teaches the same thing, and then we get to Revelation, where when it all comes to conclusion, what we find is that God wraps it up by destroying every enemy on the earth, and the book ends with God living on earth with man. So just as it began with God living on earth with man, it ends with God living on earth with man. Today, what I want to do is focus on the man side of that equation. In the weeks leading up to today, we've talked about God, we've talked about Jesus, we've talked about their role in salvation, but today I want to talk about our need for salvation and the nature of man and what role we have. What's interesting is that Jesus being called the Savior of the world assumes we need saving. But why is that the case? Well, that's an important theological truth that we need to come to terms with. We live in a relative, uh, relativistic culture that says basically, hey, if you're not as bad as the next guy, then you must be okay. I mean, that's what the whole presidential election was about, right? Who's less bad? Well, the b- reality is everybody's bad. And, well, we won't even go there. Okay, so it, it, going on... <laughs> What are we talking about? Here's why this matters. In the book of Hebrews, here's a a good summary statement. It says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's me, that's you, that's everybody that's lived. Basically, we all face the same fate. We're going to die, and then there's a judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. So he's come once, he's taken care of a real issue that we had, And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So there is a process of waiting for salvation to come. There's a process of saving that happens in the meantime. So today what I really want to talk about with you is the nature of man, the nature of death, and the nature of salvation. Again, we're just going to wade into this. We're going to go through Scripture after Scripture because it's important for us to have a proper understanding of who we are because that gives us a proper understanding of our need for who Jesus is. Are we ready to go? We good? All right, here we go. Let's talk about the nature of man. We're told in the very beginning that we are made in man's image, and that can mean a number of things. It means that we have uh, uh, free choice. It, I don't know if it means that we've got 10 fingers and 10 toes, uh, how literal that is, but we're made in man's image. We are the glory of God. We're his prime creation. But when you talk about the creation of man, I want us to understand this from the scriptures, that man fundamentally consists of dust and breath. And that word breath, as we're going to find, means spirit. So you are a compilation of two things, 
dust and spirit. And I know that we have all sorts of, you know, other cultural things, you know, your mind, body, spirit, because Jesus talks about that, love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all those things. But essentially, from a scriptural perspective, you are a compilation fundamentally of dust and spirit. In the very beginning, when God made the first man, this is what it says, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed a man from what? the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And we'll talk about what that is in a second. And man became, and depending on what translation you read, a living being, or man became a living soul. Now, that word there, down here, nope, go back. Uh, Underneath there for uh, living being or soul The Hebrew word there is nephesh, and we're going to come back to that. But what that means is a soul or a living being, a self, a life, or a person. Okay, so that is what you become. You become a soul. That is not something you have, and I'll talk more specifically about that in a minute. Now we'll go to breath, because if we are a compilation of dust and breath, what does that mean? Now, you understand that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. They each had words for this that we translate into English. Sometimes the translations are not perfect, and sometimes you'll have two or three words to capture an idea from the original language. So this word breath, in the Hebrew, you'll have two different words that often get translated as breath, ruach and nephesh. In this particular instance, it's nephesh, but throughout the Old Testament, you'll find ruach. Both of these mean breath. And then when you get to the Greek in the New Testament, that same word in the Greek is pneuma. It's where we get pneumonia or pneumatics. It has to do with air. It has to do with pressure. It has to do with breath, those types of things. All right? So the the English translation for these Hebrew words are breath, wind, and spirit. Those are interchangeable. So when you see this passage where um, God breathes into the dust of the ground the breath of life, it would be just as legitimate to say he breathed into the nostrils the spirit of life. Okay? So here's where we go. This is why we say this. Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon, at the end of his life, the wisest man that ever lived, other than Jesus, of course, reflecting on his life, says this, man's fate is like that of the animals, and the same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. All have the same spirit, the same ruach. That's one word there that could be either breath or spirit. Man has no advantage over the animals. Now, this is where the Bible starts to really mess with us, and it can really irritate us. But from a scriptural perspective... Man and animals have the same spirit. Traditionally, we like to think that people have souls and and animals don't, and there's a difference. But this isn't even talking about a soul. We'll get to that in a minute. This is talking about the spirit that makes you alive. And we have the same spirit as the animals. (laughs) So maybe it's true all dogs do to go to heaven. I don't know. So he goes on. He says, and this is interesting, all go to the same place. Where do they go? Dustin, Florida. All come from dust, and to dust, all return. Well, why is that? Because fundamentally, you are the compilation of dust and spirit. And when that spirit is removed, what's left? Dust. From dust you are, to dust 
you shall return. What does that mean? Well, here's where I get to step on your toes and mess with categories and just tell you, you believe what you want. This is just what the Bible says. That fundamentally, here's the nature of man. Man is a soul. Man doesn't have a soul, right? That doesn't sound like perhaps what most of us grew up thinking. But the reality is, man is a soul. He doesn't have a soul. Here's another way to say this, that man has spirit, but he becomes a soul. Because from the, fun, from the biblical perspective, a soul is the whole being of who you are. You are a soul. You don't have a soul. Well, what is it in you that makes you alive? It's spirit. Well, you mean there's a difference between spirit and soul? <laughs> yeah, there really is. Um, this, this will perhaps mess with your categories. In Ezekiel 18... It says, Behold, and this is God speaking, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. What does that mean? Souls die. So if you've ever heard the phrase immortal soul, that's like a round square. It doesn't exist because souls die. A soul is what you are. And all souls belong to God. All people, all lives, all beings belong to God. Now, this word soul, the soul that dies, is the same word that Genesis says when man was formed from the dust of the ground, the breath of life, and man became a soul. The conclusion is that a soul isn't immortal, a soul is something that you are. A soul is mortal, a soul is a person. Isaiah 53, a prophecy about Jesus. Notice what it says. It says, he poured out himself. It literally means, it says, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he himself bore the sin of many. It means Jesus' soul died. Because Jesus was a soul, like you're a soul and I'm a soul. The soul dies from a biblical perspective. But what does that mean about us? What does that mean about us in relation to sin? Well, here's another issue with the nature of man. Man is sinful and destined to die. Both of my grandfathers, pastors, they're dead. My dad, pastor, he's dead. My grandmothers, wonderful ladies of faith, dead. Every single person has sin just baked into our DNA, and we are destined to die. Did you know that the mortality rate in America is 100%? You don't get out alive. Everybody is destined for the same way. It is the natural consequences of sin in the world. Romans 5 says this, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and that's a reference to Adam, that in the very beginning, the whole serpent and the forbidden fruit and that decision, that's when sin entered the world. And as a result, it says death through sin, meaning the reason we die is because of Adam's sin that has been passed down genetically through us. It is just in us. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It is fascinating to me that I did not have to one time teach my children to sin. They're just naturally good at it. Did you hit him? No. I watched you, right? So here, 
what that means is for us, let's go on. I'm just going to plow right through here. Man is mortal and God is immortal. That makes sense, right? We talked in week two about God's essential characteristics, those characteristics that if he did not have them, he would not be God. One of those was immortality. It wasn't that God earned immortality. It wasn't he became immortal at some point. It was he had immortality from time immorium. It just from ages, ages ago. Without immortality, he wouldn't be God. Man is mortal. The soul that sins is a soul that dies, right? Romans 6 says, we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. I got you out of order, sorry. Go back one. Because since God, man is mortal, God is immortal, man must be given immortality like Jesus was given immortality, right? Because what happened to Jesus on the cross? He died. After he was raised from the dead, he was made immortal, which makes him distinct from the Father because the Father intrinsically is immortal. Jesus was given immortality according to Romans. There you go to Romans. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him, which means prior to that, mastery or death did have mastery over him. Jesus was mortal because he was man, and he is now immortal, which is the very reason you have hope. It's the very reason I have hope, that in my sinfulness, I know that all is not lost, because God raised Jesus from the dead, I can be confident that he will raise us as well. But until then, what happens? Well, we know we're going to die. So what is the nature of death? Well, d- again, we're just going to wade through some scriptures here because this may be new to some of you. Some of you have known this for a long, long time. More and more denominations are coming to this. It's, it's fascinating to me to watch how cultural trends even impact churches. But death is like sleep. While we await the resurrection. And again, this picture is all over the scriptures. Notice that in John chapter 11, this is the, the passage where Jesus' good friend Lazarus died, and he's talking to his disciples about going to raise him from the dead. And after he had said this in verse 11, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples are so wonderfully simple, they ask the silliest question. Which is what you would ask if you were in their shoes. Well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Well, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. According to the writers of Scripture, when you are dead, it is akin to being asleep. That is not the only passage that we find this. Even in the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel writes this, looking to the future, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So if they will awake, they are first asleep. Where are they asleep? In the grave, in death, right? And there is a day when they will all awake from that. David writes in the book of Psalms, Psalm 13, he says, Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. In other words, hey, if I'm dead, wake me up. Give light to my eyes. I'm looking for a resurrection. First Kings, writing about King David, it says, Then David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Again, according to biblical writers, death 
is akin to sleep. And this is not a foreign concept. You guys have seen tombstones before. What do they say on them? Rest in peace. King David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. But that's not just Old Testament. New Testament says the same thing in the book of Acts. This is the story of Stephen. When Stephen was being stoned and Saul stood by to watch. And it says, he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I don't think it was nap time with a rock hitting him in the head. This means he what? He died. Paul, writing a letter to a church in Corinth, says this, That is why many among you who are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul's saying, look, I know guys in your church have died, right? And how does he refer to death? As sleep. 1 Thessalonians, he's writing to another church. Again, clearing up some confusion. He says, brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. He's not talking about you guys in the back row at church. He's talking about people who have died. He says, don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. The Lord himself, in verse 16, will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So according to Paul, as he is writing about those who are dead, he says, those who have fallen asleep. So what does that mean death is like? Well, we could probably say this fairly confidently, that the sleep of death is unconsciousness, unconsciousness. Again, I can't tell you, like, who was it? Oh, anybody watch any football yesterday? Did you hear what the commentator said at one point? I don't remember if it was Woody or Bo, but they said something about, I bet they're looking down right now, blah, 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 whatever it was, right? But why? There's an assumption that those people who have died are looking down on us and participating in our weddings and graduations and the birth of our children, and they're happy to see us succeed, and, and, and you know, they've got our back when we're in a tight spot, and, and those that have died have somehow uh, a role in our life, the, the, an awareness of what's happening, that they continue to participate in what we do on a daily basis. That is such a difficult idea to square with Scripture. Look at what Solomon says about the sleep of death in Ecclesiastes 9. He says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know how wonderful graduation was, how happy urban was, No, they don't know anything. They know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Here's the thing. He goes on in verse 6. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. So my grandfather, my father, who would have been proud, I think, to see me in my next role, and mad that he wasn't chosen, (laughs) right, doesn't know. He has no part in anything that happens under the sun until the resurrection. So if that's true, where do they go, right? 
I, I mean, what happens to people when they die? Well, the reality is, <laughs> my dad went to hell. What? In a biblical perspective, you need to understand some of the things that the scriptures say. Hell is not Dante's inferno, okay? Here's from a scriptural standpoint, hell is the grave. It is not a place of fiery torment, according to the writers of scripture. Not necessarily according to the Catholic Church, not necessarily according to your grandma, not necessarily according to other people that you love and trust, but according to the scriptures, hell is the grave. Now, what's interesting is there are some specific words that the Greek writers used and the Hebrew writers used to describe this place where the dead went. Whether it was a realm of the dead or, or, or the grave, this is what they used. The word that they used was Sheol. In the Old Testament, the writers would write um, the word Sheol when they talked about where dead people went. And as um, English translators bring it into our language, they will either, when they read the word Sheol in the original language, use in English grave, death, or hell. That those three things are interchangeable because they're all coming from the same word. When you get into the New Testament, which is written in Greek, the word that those writers used was Hades. And when you translate Hades into English, it means the grave or death or the hell. Again, don't take my word for it. Let's just look at the scriptures. In the book of Genesis, um, I think this is uh, Jacob as he's thinking about Joseph, his son that the uh, brothers had sold into slavery and said, oh, daddy got killed by an animal. He says, in mourning, I will go down to the grave to my son. Thinking his son is dead, he's like, I'm going to die in mourning as I join him in the grave. But what he says is, I'm going to Sheol. And so his father wept for him. The English translators understood that Sheol, where dead people go, is the grave. Job 17, the oldest book in the Bible. He says, if the only home I hope for is the grave, and the word there is Sheol, where then is my hope? Will it go down to the gates of death? What's the word there? Sheol. So in the same passage, that word shows up twice. Once the translators say grave, once they say death. Will we descend together into the dust? That's what happens when you die. You go to the dust, which is the grave, which is death, which is Sheol. Isaiah 38 says, must I go through the gates of death, and the word there is Sheol, and be robbed of the rest of my years? So there is an understanding from these Old Testament writers that where you go when you die is the dust. It is the grave. It is Sheol. Back to Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave, the word is Sheol, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Again, reiterating the point that when you die and you descend into the dust, into Sheol, into the grave, you are unconscious of the passing of time. You no longer have any part in anything that happens under the sun. So, 
Well, that's well and great, Seth, but what about the whole spirit thing? You know, doesn't something go back to God? Yes, it does, but perhaps not the way we have typically thought about it. At death, the spirit, ruach, or in the Greek, pneuma, returns to God. What does that mean? Well, it's an important thing to understand what the writers meant when they talked about ruach, meaning breath, wind, or spirit. And what's interesting, we'll get to this in a minute, so let me, let, let's just look at this. Psalm 146, when their spirit, the word there is ruach, departs, they return to the ground. Isn't that wonderfully consistent? It is such a simple way to understand what happens to us. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Again, unconsciousness, right? The spirit departs. We return to the ground. On that day, plans come to nothing. Ecclesiastes 12, the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit, ruach, returns to God who gave it. Ah, there Seth, I knew it. James 2, says, as the body without the spirit, pneuma, is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Okay, Seth, well, there you go. It's the Ruach. So if you don't want to call it soul, that's fine. We'll call it spirit. But you know what? It's the same thing. You live on forever. You don't really die. Everybody lives forever somewhere. You ever hear a preacher say that? Everybody lives forever somewhere. We'll get to that in a minute. But we need to understand what this spirit thing is, this Ruach. Here's what the Old Testament writers, the biblical authors understood it to be. One is the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God returns to him when you die. It is the Spirit of God in you that makes you alive. Notice this in Genesis 1. Now the earth was formless and empty, the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God, Ruach, was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God is commensurate with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, right? It's the Spirit of God. It's, it's this Ruach. It's this breath of life. It's the, the animating force that creates. Then, in Genesis 6, we also see that it is the breath of life. Same word by the biblical authors. In Genesis 6, it says, I am going, this is God saying, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life, ruach in it, everything on earth will perish. Well, wait a second. Now, this breath of life, which is what we were given in this context, is what the animals have, which, oh yeah, that's what Solomon said. We have no advantage over the animals. We all have the same spirit, the same ruach. But then, notice this, in Genesis 8, we find that it is wind. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind, which is ruach, over the earth, and the waters receded. Now, this is an interesting use of that word ruach if it really means spirit. You know, spirit of God is the breath of life, and here it just means wind. Well, Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says the Holy Spirit is like the wind. And you don't know where it's going to go and how God's going to use it. It just sort of comes and goes, and it moves like it will, like it wills. So in the way that the Spirit of God animates us. It is a creative force. It is the thing that makes you alive. 
The Spirit of God is what is in you. And we know medically we can take a cadaver, we can stick it in the hospital, we can hook it up to an IV, we can hook it up to a, a, a gas lung, we can do all those things, we can pump blood through the veins, we can pump air into the oxygen. Is that person alive? No, it's just a corpse with blood and oxygen. Well, what is the difference between a corpse that is dead and a corpse that is alive? Ruach. It is the Spirit of God in that person animating them. So quick summary of the nature of death is that a dead person goes somewhere, they go to the grave, both righteous people and unrighteous people, that's important to understand, we all go to the same place, the spirit or ruach returns to God, and the dead are unaware of anything, they're asleep. So that's great, Seth, real pick-me-up for today. So what happens? Is that it? Are we done? No. That's why Jesus matters. That's why resurrection is awesome. That's why it's so critical to what we believe as Christians. Let's talk about salvation for a minute, the nature of salvation. Now, we understand from Scripture that eternal life is a gift, which means not everyone lives forever. But I cannot tell you how often on the radio or listening to sermons I've heard preachers say, everyone lives forever somewhere. And in their minds, the only difference is whether your forever is awesome or whether it's lousy. Whether you live forever in heaven or you live forever in hell. Well, the Bible just messes with that in so many ways. That's why you can just be mad at me, mad at me. I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Romans 6, and again, we know this, we know this, we know this, but we sometimes don't think about what it means. For the wages of sin is dead, death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How many people die? Everybody. How many people have eternal life? Those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, which means not everybody has it, Right? It is given to us at the judgment. So judgment is at the resurrection, not at death. This is another fine-tuned thing. And this is going to be one of those interesting. Let me just pause here and say, what we're talking about is really, really interesting and important biblical truth, but it's not salvation truth. So I'll get to that in a minute. But it certainly is about biblical accuracy. Here's what the Scriptures teach. Traditionally, we have understood as Christians that somebody, when they die, they go immediately to heaven or hell. Isn't that what you've seen or heard? And, you know, I mean, that's just like, yeah, doesn't everybody believe that? Well, not the biblical authors. So that's interesting. Because if you consider that, if the moment that you die, you either go to heaven or hell, then you have either been judged worthy or unworthy. You have been judged scripturally, judgment comes not at the moment of death, but at the resurrection. It's a timing issue. But Jesus said this in John 5. He says, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. In the mind of Jesus, everybody who is dead is currently in their grave. And there is a time in the future when they will all come out of the grave at that point to be judged, either worthy or not worthy. Not 
the moment you die. Luke 4, or Daniel 12, we read this before, but multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Meaning multitudes have not yet been judged according to the biblical writers. Luke 14, again, Jesus, and he messes this up all the time. Jesus says, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That your reward, the judgment bestowed on you, doesn't come now, it comes at the resurrection. John 11, after Lazarus had died, Martha answered, you know, she, she goes and um, she says, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he says, uh, he'll live again. And this is what she says, Martha answered, I know he will rise again, when? At the resurrection, at the last day. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, meaning Christ, the first fruits, Jesus was raised from the dead after three days. And then when he comes, those who belong to him. So in Paul's mind, Jesus was the first one to be raised from the dead and made immortal. And then when he comes, that second return, everybody else, and they'll be made immortal. Hebrews 11, we touched on this, I don't know, last couple months ago. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's this whole chapter about people of great faith, and it includes Abraham and Moses and Jacob and Joseph and David and and Elijah and, and all of these great people of faith. And at the very end... It says in verse 39, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. What was promised? It's eternal life, right? So God had planned something better for us so that what? Only together with us would they be made perfect. This is fascinating. I did more reading last night on alternative theories of, you know, the resurrection in this passage, and I stayed up way later than I probably should have. But there's this idea out there that all the dead in the Old Testament, they're all in Sheol until Jesus got the keys to the kingdom at the resurrection, and then everybody was made perfect in heaven. The problem is it's the writer saying together with us, and the writer ain't dead yet, which means that they still have not yet been made perfect at the resurrection of Jesus. So, in terms of Christianity, what's the goal? Resurrection is the goal. That's what we yearn for. That's what we long for. That's what we look forward to. Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. Like if I got to, you know, take it for the team, if I've got to suffer for the cause of Christ, I'm willing to do so. And in his sufferings, become, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, my goal is to be so closely identified with Jesus that somehow I can attain to the resurrection of the dead. That was his goal. Romans 8, he's writing to another group of Christians, and he says, we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, resurrection, that's what we are waiting eagerly for. In verse 24 then, regarding that hope, it is for in this hope... We were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? What? Yeah, we don't have eternal life yet. It has to be given to us at some point. 
But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently, he says. So why does it matter? I mean, Seth, you just ran us through, you know, 90 slides of PowerPoint. And verse after verse after verse. But why does it matter? Well, resurrection matters, I think, for a couple of reasons. So when we walk out of here today, the reason resurrection matters is, one, it gives us hope. It gives us hope that God didn't forget us. It gives us hope that we're not alone. It gives us hope that there's something better than what we experience now. It gives us hope that something is coming. It gives us hope that we can endure. It gives us hope that we matter to Him, that God hasn't forgotten us, that He has a plan for us. It matters because it gives us hope. But secondly, I think it matters because it's consistent with God's nature. Go back to week two, and we we, we looked at what God is like in, in His nature and His characteristics. God's focus is reward. It's not punishment. It's not believe in my son or else I'm going to get you and I'm going to send you to a really, really bad place. He says, no, eternal life is a gift. It's something I want to give you. And when I send Christ back, will there even be faith on the earth? But man, those of us who have been faithful to the end, there's a reward there. And secondly, God's love has always been his motivation. Never fear. In 1 John, it says, you know, God is love, and perfect love drives out fear. So, so if I ever stand up here and say, you better believe in Jesus or else, that's a wrong motivation. That's not consistent with God's nature. God's nature is, I love you so much. I want the very best for you, and I want to help you avoid the pitfalls of this life, and I want to help you avoid missing out on what I have in store for the future. And then thirdly, I think this is odd, but I, I think resurrection is concrete. And I know it's weird to say concrete, something that hasn't happened yet and what we hope for. But it's concrete because it, it, it's so tangible, it's so real. I'm going to see my dad again. I'm going to see my grandfathers again. I'm going to see my grandmothers again. Like, like not just, you know, some Cupid on a cloud and, you know, an arrow and a harp. It, it, this is like... They're coming out of their graves, and God's got something in store for us. It's something I can hang on to. I can explain it. I can grasp it. I can look forward to it. And you might be thinking, well, Seth, I've never heard this before, and that's okay. But not knowing it doesn't make it any less true. It's simply what the Scriptures say. And, and, and I know growing up, you know, we've got well-meaning people in our lives that have taught us things over the years, and they love Jesus, even if they were not clear on this topic. But being biblically accurate isn't always easy. Just ask Martin Luther, who stood in opposition to the Catholic Church and nailed the theses on the door. And Martin Luther still didn't have it all right. And I'm here to stand here and say, I don't even have it all right. I'm sure there are things that I have yet to learn. But being in the majority isn't what makes you right. Just ask Noah. Everyone on the planet had a different idea than Noah, and yet Noah was the one who had it right. Just ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood in opposition to every single person in the land who bowed to the idol, and they didn't. They went into the furnace, but God stood by their side. Tell that to the 12 disciples. 
when it all came crashing down and Jesus was on the cross crucified, it's hard being right. But you have the freedom to choose. You have the hope of the resurrection. You have something to look forward to. You have a heavenly father who loves you, who gave you his very own son to die on your behalf so that you can have the hope of something else. And this is personal to me. It matters to me. I've mentioned it. You know, my two grandfathers, my dad, other people. And for me, this whole outlook on life and death gives me a real sense of peace, right? Because as I think about those that I have loved and I have lost to the enemy known as death, I have a sense of peace that they have, their struggle is done. They have run the race. They are resting, waiting for the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And I have a sense of peace because they don't have to sit here and watch my struggles. And they don't have to watch as I get a biopsy. And they don't have to watch as I suffer through cancer. They don't have to watch as I take care of my aunt with Alzheimer's. They don't have to watch as my marriage disintegrates. They don't have to watch as my kids, whatever your kids do, those that we have loved don't have to endure what we continue to endure. They rest in peace. Because God's promises are sure. He's never failed. He'll come through. And he has outlined clearly what the plan is. That if we're faithful, we do not have to fear death. But we wait anxiously for the return of Jesus. When that trumpet sounds, the dead will rise. And we shall be greeted and live forever on a renewed earth. Awesome. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you for all that you've done for us in the past. I thank you for the hope that you've given us. I thank you for the assurance of resurrection by raising your own son from the dead so we can see that you're capable and that you will do it. Lord, While we live our lives, may we rest in that hope, may we lean into that assurance, and may we be given uh, perseverance in light of the promises that you made as we look forward to the day of your son's return. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.